and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm honored to welcome Stacy Schiff back to the program today for the second part of our two-part interview. Stacy is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who has published six books, as well as having her writing appear in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Her books include Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, Portrait of a Marriage, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize, A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America, The Witches, Salem, 1692, Cleopatra, A Life, and today we will conclude talking about her new book, The Revolutionary, a biography about founding father Samuel Adams, which is published by Little Brown. So when we last left off, we were teasing Thomas Hutchinson, who was the governor for Massachusetts Colony, and he was the governor for about 16 years leading up to Revolutionary War. How did he respond to these rabble-rousers in Massachusetts, especially like Samuel Adams, and considering the events of 1765? I have such an enormous amount of sympathy for Thomas Hutchinson because it, it would be difficult to describe a more level-headed, dutiful, diligent public servant. He is as fond of Boston and of the Massachusetts Bay Colony as is Samuel Adams. It's very much his country. It's very much his home. He's like Adams, a fifth-generation son of Massachusetts. His family has been intimately involved with its government for generations. He just happens to see everything from the opposite political side. That isn't initially the case. So in answer to your question, in 1765, when the Stamp Act is passed, Thomas Hutchinson, too, objects to the Stamp Act, which is essentially a universal opinion. Everyone believes it's a poor idea, but Hutchinson himself will say this is taxation without representation. Problem for him comes in the fact that because he is lieutenant governor at the time, he has no choice really but to endorse it as much as he doesn't subscribe to it or, or think it was a wise idea. And It is because of his inability to distance himself from it that he'll get into so much trouble because his seeming tepid embrace of it will be written off by Adams and his friends as support of it, which in fact is unfair on their parts. And so 1765 is a bad time to be a house that he lives in as well. So what happens in 1765 is that the anger against the Stamp Act is so great that there'll be a number of acts of a bit of street theater in Boston. There'll be effigies which are hung around town. There'll be tormenting of the Hutchinson relative, actually, who was meant to administer the Stamp Act. In an eruption of greater violence later, Thomas Hutchinson's house will be invaded by a horde of of axe-toting people who will destroy the house. He and his family narrowly escape while this crowd troops in and with axes, cuts down the wainscoting and the draperies, cuts the beds to pieces, throws things out the window, feathers are floating through the air. Thomas Hutchinson's papers wind up in the streets. Everyone's wardrobes are are stolen. They essentially sack Hutchinson's home so that he appears the next morning in court with only the clothes on his back. It's a very violent reaction, a a real vile desecration of a public official. In the book, you have, yet liberty was a commodity more often admired than enjoyed or understood. Men happily extolled it, for when that meant noting, they have their own well-being. Adams stressed on equation on which could never sufficiently insist, a corrupt people would not long remain free. It seems like those words have a resonance today, as they did back then. I think that Adams was very intent on this sense that no man should ever be above the law, and no man should ever be below it. And he couldn't stress that enough, nor could he stress enough how much people acting together could insist on their rights or their liberties. And yes, that does that and the public protest do seem to me very resonant with where we are today. 
because it seems like everyone seems to claim the founding fathers as an inspiration for their political <laughs> attitudes. Yes. And they're probably all right because it was a fractious group. Everyone had every opinion. It's a fractious group. You can claim different aspects of it, which are contradictory. So, for example, I mean, what Adams is really most, I think, intent on reordering is this hierarchical sense, the sense that certain people, that, that there is a ruling elite, that certain people have consolidated wealth and consolidated power. And yet today, I think we've conjoined that with a sort of populist sentiment at the same time. So you get these different, you get the different pieces sliding around in a way they don't, they don't necessarily go together as they did in the 18th century. And his view of liberty did include the elimination of slavery was very clear about how he felt about slavery. We have a number of instances. The first and the most personal is on his second marriage, his previous mother-in-law decides to give the couple as a wedding gift, a slave, which was apparently a not unusual gift in upper-class Boston. And Adams balks at the offer and says that Surrey, which was the woman's name, could come to live with the family, but she would have to be free in order to do so. And he arranges for that. And in fact, she lives with him for decades. He never writes back to his wife about the family without mentioning Surrey. So she's clearly a, a very intimate part of the household. And he will be involved in a few abortive efforts in the 1760s to do something about the slave trade in New England. Various people who are trying to organize petitions against it will reach out to Adams, who, who clearly is sympathetic. Obviously, nothing comes of those efforts. And then later, when the Constitution is, comes to Massachusetts to be considered, he will balk again at the document as it's written, in part because it has no Bill of Rights. What he really wants to see before the document is ratified are things like freedom of speech and a clause against the slave trade. Did he ever write about women's suffrage or the treatment of indigenous Americans? Writes nothing to the best of my knowledge about indigenous Americans, although he does reach out to them at various junctures in attempts to incorporate them in efforts against Great Britain, and particularly around the time of around the time of the Tea Act. Apparently, the Native Americans were also big consumers of tea, so he thought they would be very sympathetic. He's very early on an advocate for female education. Education was really his big calling card. He knew that democracy rested, obviously, on an educated populace, and he didn't think that women should be exempt from that. In every one of his descriptions of education, he says, girls and boys should be well-schooled. His wife is clearly extremely well-educated. And you have his quote, an uneducated people would not long remain a sovereign one. And that seems to have resonance again today. Indeed. I, he really stresses it over and over again. It's basically probity and education. And those were the twin pillars, virtue and education, the twin pillars on which democracy rests. How did Adams cover the Boston Massacre and what liberties so to say, did he take with leveraging this tragedy for advantage against the crown? At first, after the massacre, he does what any sort of righteous-minded person would do, which is to, to demand that a trial be held immediately. And here he and Thomas Hutchinson are at odds. Eight soldiers and a regimental captain have been involved in some kind of violence. Citizens have died. While tempers are still inflamed, Adams would like to see a trial. Hutchinson obviously would like for the trial to be delayed as long as possible until things calm in the town. So Adams will, with friends, at one point barge into court to demand of some justices that they arrange for a trial sooner rather than later. Ultimately, he'll be outwitted by Hutchinson, who manages to delay from March until the fall for the trial. And then there are two trials, actually, one for the regimental captain, Preston himself, 
and then a second one for for the soldiers. Preston will be exonerated. Adams is not in the room for that trial. We don't we don't know why. None of the Patriot leaders seem to be in the room. But he will be in the room for the second trial, less than helpfully sort of passing messages to the to the attorneys, to the prosecuting attorneys. And after the trial, when all but two of the soldiers are exonerated, he will really go to town writing articles in the press where he essentially relitigates the entire trial. And so although nearly everyone has been exonerated, Adams will spend the next months proving essentially that justice has not been served and that the men were in fact guilty. And he'll use sort of every every little bit of evidence in his arsenal to do so. I mean, he'll he'll ask what the soldiers were doing out that late at night. He'll note that Captain Preston had had says he had commanded his men not to fire. Adams will say, you know, since when are the words don't fire a military command? Even I know those are not a military command. He will question the evidence that is given by some of the victims. He will question the capacity to serve of the jurors. He'll pretty much question everyone involved to the point where he picks up a an adversary in the press. The attorney general will, under a pseudonym, start responding to Adams's very popular articles and essentially say, are you really meaning to say that after 24 jurors and four justices have declared these men innocent, you alone know of their guilt? And the answer to that is essentially yes, that is was indeed Adams's conviction. So he'll turn the, the massacre into a sort of martyrdom, both in those pieces and in the annual orations that for which he'll arrange afterwards. There's some evidence that he coins the term Boston Massacre, but he certainly does seem to coin the massacre orations, which will be this extremely poignant affair annually in the years that follow, in which extraordinarily sentimental, emotional speeches are given, and the town sort of relives the horror of that March evening. And what did he think of the defense counsel for the soldiers? Well, the defense counsel of the soldiers, having been John Adams, he thought very highly of him. The conversations between the two of them over those months must have been fascinating. We have no trace of them whatsoever. It would be very difficult, I think, for John Adams to have taken on the defense without Samuel having signed off on it. We know he signs off on another one of the defense attorney's decisions to to join the defense. The accepted wisdom over the years has been that it was comfortable for Samuel to have John in that role, in that no secrets of the town would be would be displayed if John were in control, but justice would be served. And in fact, it was extremely important to prove that Boston was a town that could administer justice. So there was a, there was a good reason for it. So he may have felt most comfortable with John in that role. For his part, John Adams would find it the worst assignment of his career. And for a long time afterward, would talk about the recriminations that he faced in the streets and the squawking about the fact that he had taken on this incredibly unpopular assignment. But one of the most important things in the founding of our legal system and the way we approach justice even today. Absolutely. I think we hark back to John Adams's defense of those soldiers all the time when we want to prove that we have a system that works. And you know, it's funny, even Thomas Hutchinson at, at that moment will say that he's very proud of his of the colony because they have managed to, you know, do the right thing under these exceptional circumstances. In Samuel Adams' steadfastness, that can also be a form of unyielding. And it seems that he had friends with whom he was in and out of favor over the course of years. What were his friendships with John Hancock and Otis like? In both of those cases, the friendships wax and wane. The Otis case is largely because of sanity at Otis's address, I would say. Otis is an immensely brilliant man. Also, at some level, clearly succumbs to some kind of mental illness. He sounds manic at times. Later, he sounds 
more than just plain manic. That's probably after <laughs> suffering that head wound when he was beaten yeah. by the, the regulars. The head wound was definitely seems to have unsettled what was already a somewhat fragile constitution. But yes, after that, he's you never know if it's a Whig day or a Tory day or which side he's going to be on, whether he's going to you know say the Stamp Act was a good idea or a bad idea. And Samuel Adams is doing a lot of cleaning up after him. Samuel Adams is immensely loyal to him and will, in fact, write a letter in which he essentially says, you know, the tears essentially come to his eyes when he sees the state that Otis is in, but he pleads for patience with him among their colleagues, which isn't easy because Otis could talk a blue streak and he talks a double blue streak after his health deteriorates. At one point, he arrives on Thomas Hutchinson's doorstep begging for mercy. I mean, it's just very difficult to know where he's going to land on the political spectrum. So that's a difficult relationship for Adams to regulate. Hancock is, I think, a more vexing situation. Hancock is a younger man, he's 15 years younger, also someone whom Adams recruits to the cause because he gambles that Hancock, who's a fairly vain character, will like the attention of being in the limelight and that his fortune, Hancock is among the wealthiest men in New England, will be a boon to the party, which, which also proves to be true. But what also proves to be true is that Hancock tires of Adams. And sometimes we know the reason, sometimes we don't. They're on and off speaking terms at various points. After the Boston Massacre, when the town goes very quiet, largely because I think it's exhausted by the events of the previous year, Thomas Hutchinson will be able to separate Hancock and Adams completely. Hancock will swear that he never wants to speak to Adams again. And Partly that is because Hutchinson has bought him off. Partly that is because there seems to have been some ill will between Hancock and Adams. And although friends will reconcile the two of them, they will be sort of in and out of each other's good graces over the next couple of decades. And ultimately, Adams's reputation will suffer because he and Hancock do fall out. Hancock turns out to be the more popular character after the revolution, and he does his best to blacken the, the reputation of Samuel Adams. So there's some lasting damage there to a very um, tumultuous relationship. How did their time later as governor and lieutenant governor go? Hancock is elected over and over again. He's extremely popular in Boston as governor. He's extremely lavish in his gifts to the town, and he's extremely popular among the people. Adams clearly resents this, and large-minded though he had seemed before the revolution, he clearly sound, he sounds very peevish on Hancock's count afterwards. They reconcile enough to serve briefly as governor and lieutenant governor, and then Hancock dies early. Hancock dies in his 50s. And there's a last sort of kind and conciliatory letter to Adams, but those had been difficult years for the two of them. And certainly, even in the press after he dies, Hancock's ghost is still fighting it out with Samuel Adams. So when does the rhetoric shift from liberty to independence? It's really difficult to tell with Adams when the word independence enters the picture. In part, it wasn't a word that one threw around lightly, especially when one is fomenting revolution. I think almost everyone else in those years identifies a point at which he crosses a Rubicon. Adams never uses the word Rubicon. He mentions independence a few times as something from which the British should shy or the mother country should shy, but he never mentions it as something for which the colonies should reach until, in fact, after shots are fired and after Lexington and Concord, he essentially feels independence should have been declared the following day and he will hunger for it, ache for it, do everything he can to promote it. But until that point, in all of his published materials, it is always an insistence on colonial rights and liberties as opposed to any independence from the mother country. And some of that obviously is just, it was not politic to say, you know, there should be a separation. It's a huge, huge step to insist on separation of any kind. 
Now, of course, in popular history and entertainment, we hear about King George III during this time. But what role did his prime minister, Frederick North, play in the lead-up to the revolution? I think we can say that Lord North, like largely pretty much everyone else at the top of the British administration, plays an enormous role here in the sense of having accomplished any number of unforced errors. There's just utter tone deafness, for lack of a better word, from the London side of administering the, the colonies. On every level, there's deep ignorance about who the colonies are, where they're located. Are they in the East Indies or the West Indies? Are Boston and Philadelphia islands? What do these what do people look like over there? How much can they afford? No one really understands initially anyway that something like a Stamp Act is going to be exorbitant and impossible for the colonies. And by the time of the Tea Act in 1773, there's just a complete misapprehension. No one, few people in London, except in the opposition, understand how tea and liberty have become so tightly braided together. So in any number of places, Adams's very hearty opposition begins to fall apart, and he's rescued again and again by some miscalculation coming from London. So how did overflowing warehouses lead to the Tea Act? So most of the Revenue Acts are passed on an attempt either to raise revenue or ultimately to just assert parliamentary authority over the colonies. In 1773, the Tea Act is passed more to bail out the failing East India Company, whose warehouses are choked with tea, as you mentioned, than for any other reason. There are ancillary reasons for which it's helpful, which is that by passing this act, you essentially can undermine the smugglers who are supplying the colonies with tea. You can remind the colonies of parliamentary sovereignty when they start drinking that tea. But you're also really doing this to bail out the East India Company. And again, that's a calculation that is made for the advantage of a private concern as opposed to for the sake of the colonies. And the Crown could not seem to understand that the more they tighten the screws, the more resistance there would be. It really does feel like a dynamic that's very familiar to any of us who have had adolescent children in our households. After every reprimand, man, there seems to be just another act of indiscipline that, that blossoms. So at one point, they thought it might have been possible for Canada to follow the colonies into independence. What period was this that was thought to be? The obsession with Canada, which is which is truly an obsession on Samuel Adams's part, he tries for a long time to to claim Canada and Florida, lasts for a long time, but it will continue. I mean, ben Franklin, when he's in Paris negotiating the peace treaty in 1783, will also be trying to make a last grab for Canada. So the obsession from Can for, with Canada goes on for a very long time. Obviously, it made perfect sense to colonial America that that Canada should join it and be part of its efforts. There's a very urgent letter that Adams dispatches early on to Montreal to ask if the Canadians would please join their cause. Did Adams have any sense of the coming Manifest Destiny movement of the next century, or did he really envision a nation to be just on the, the eastern seaboard? I think the focus is really on the eastern seaboard. No, I'm not sure. I don't think there's anything else on that. While it's a somewhat tedious sounding in name, what role did the committees of correspondence play in the push toward independence? From a very early date, Adams is set on unifying the colonies. I mean, as much as he doesn't mention the word independence, he often mentions this idea of colonial union. It's an obsession of his, which finally he is able to realize, again, after another British misstep, after a British attempt to make 
judicial salaries, something that the crown pays as opposed to the, the people pay. And he establishes these committees of correspondence, which is, I think is an intentionally anodyne sounding name, intentionally un, inoffensive sounding name, which are basically just committees of people in each town, beginning in each town in Massachusetts, ultimately in each town in New England, finally in, in towns throughout the colonies, which would communicate with each other, which could actually share each other's concerns about rights trampled and, and liberties invaded. His feeling being that if everyone could come to the same page, there could actually be some movement on this front. It was an idea that he had from a very early point, which when he finally is able to institute it late in 1772, seems to many people traitorous and to Thomas Hutchinson certainly preposterous. He doesn't see that this could that this effort could possibly take off or what good it could serve. And then again, largely through British missteps, Adams's committee's pick up a certain, gather a certain amount of momentum so that by the spring of 1773 and in advance of the of the Tea Act, you have committees in, in the, a larger percentage of the towns in Massachusetts, ultimately in 60% of the towns in Massachusetts. And they begin to speak the same language, which of course is exactly that kind of revolution to which John Adams referred when he talks about a revolution in thinking. Suddenly the language is familiar, the concerns are familiar, and everyone is able to work in unison. In 1774, Hutchinson is removed as governor, and I guess that was pretty much the last straw of what was coming next. Hutchinson is aware after the destruction of the tea in 1773 that he needs to leave for Great Britain. And I think does so ambivalently. Obviously, his home is still Massachusetts. He realizes, however, that for his own safety, he, he needs to leave the colonies. It is a concession of defeat in many ways that he sails. And when first he arrives in Great Britain, it will be as a sort of an emissary from this very foreign world where he's reporting very astutely on what's going on. And ultimately, as things take a turn for the worse, he will become something of an embarrassment in London as the governor who many people on some level believe should have been able to sort of quash this little rebellion in its earliest days and who is less than welcome at court as the years go by. And so how did he manage to avoid getting arrested for his seditious writings over all this time? There constant references to the fact that Adams is about to be arrested or should be arrested or should fear being arrested. It's the understanding of the British ministry that if a few obstreperous people could be got rid of, this entire movement would be stymied. And it's very clear who the names of those men are. I think Adams trusts in the fact, rightfully, that if anything were to happen to him the indignity would only exacerbate matters, that if something is to happen to him, that would simply prove explosive to the movement. And he trusts in that. And that seems to be part of his logic at the time of Lexington and Concord, when, in fact, there is an order for his and John Hancock's arrest, when they are the two sort of prescribed traitors. And he trusts to the fact that if anyone tries to arrest him, that's going to detonate an explosion of some kind. Now, we've mentioned it a little bit, but what was his final act after the revolution? like in his last 20 or so years? I would say that the third act is about as unsatisfying as the first act. <laughs> um, he's been entirely at the forefront, in the vanguard, in the limelight, or as much as he could bear in the limelight, for a very crucial 14 or 15 years. He then spends a very taxing number of years commuting back and forth between Boston and Philadelphia. He spends a tremendous amount of time with Congress then returns to Boston almost a stranger to the town of Boston because he's been gone so long and is very much out of step with the town. John Hancock obviously is in the ascendant. Adams represents the past in many ways. He seems a, a relic in some ways of the pre-revolutionary years. 
he dresses unfashionably. He has no real interest in in matters mercantile. He's still clinging to a, a very sober Republican idea. The country is rushing on in a, to a very different future. He attempts at a few points to throw his hat in the ring for several political positions and fails miserably. And he doesn't really get any traction. He seems to always be at odds with various characters. All of his ability to bring men together and to infect them with uh, with new ideas seems to have abandoned him in those years. So it's a very kind of unsatisfactory act. People who are studying the revolution, people who are budding revolutionaries will call on him. They still refer to him as sort of the picture of Republican simplicity, but he plays no great role in Boston or in federal matters after those years. Now, with the recent successes of McCullough's Adams being turned into a miniseries, Chernow's Hamilton being turned into a, a major musical, if they were to adapt the revolutionary for stage or screen, what do you think the most important moments you would want to see involved in that? And what are some that you think they should just definitely not even address? <laughs> such a, that's such a delicious question. I think we can all agree that the Boston Tea Party, where Adams clearly plays the central role or a central role, depending on which documents you, you most want to believe, would be utterly fascinating. I mean, we, we know a certain amount about the Boston Tea Party, although, of course, no one in Boston claimed to have seen a thing. But we do know from depositions taken later how much Adams was leading the affair. Thomas Hutchinson says afterwards that Adams was never in greater glory than he was the morning after the destruction of the tea. And just an incident at which you have you know thousands of people watching, but nobody sees a thing would seem to me to be inherently dramatic. And I started the book with Paul Revere's ride because it obviously the stuff of not just history, but also of lore and poetry. And because we forget, I think that Paul Revere was riding that night to warn Samuel Adams of arrest, if not assassination. So I guess those would be the two moments that would jump out at me. I would thoroughly love to erase the third act of Adams's life when he when he does seem so so much to fail at all of the things that he had been so expert at for those crucial 14 or 15 years. You may not be able to share the topic with us, but do you have a, a time period that you're looking at for your next project? I don't. I'm still somewhat enraptured by these years, although I don't know that that means I'll go back to them. I've definitely thought of this book as kind of falling between the witches and the Ben Franklin book. It really carries us from the years of sort of Puritan America to the enlightenment of days of Franklin and Jefferson. So in a way, I think of them as a sort of trio, but I don't know that I mean to make that a quartet. I haven't quite got my head out of the Adams papers yet. There's, there comes a point where you realize that you're. it's time to sort of move the the paper out of your office. You sort of need to evict the subject of your previous book and make room for the next one. And I haven't yet got to the eviction process for Samuel Adams. What role do you think that the witch trials of Salem and that period of America played into the embracing of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, seeing this kind of overreach by religious power? Yeah, I think that after the witch, I think that after the witch trials, the church loses a certain amount of its legitimacy or loses a certain amount of its status. It's very hard to trust entirely to it again because of the excess and because of the, because of, of having sort of exceeded the guardrails. It's an interesting incident in terms of these years, in terms of the 1760s and early 1770s, in that crown officers who are watching the unrest or watching the, the street manifestations and the protests and the sort of evolution in thinking will constantly appeal to the witch trials, to the witch delusion anyway, and will compare what they're hearing and seeing to 1692 so that 
you know, the, the witchery of 1692, the deluded populace who believe in witches in 1692 seem to them the closest analogy for these deluded colonists who seem to have all these crazy ideas about crown abuse. And they will, for years, write this off as delusion rather than revolution. And there was a, a quote early on from a customs officer about the worries about religion. Scripture is brought in to cover treason and murder, howled a Boston customs officer. Yes. I mean, there's very much a sense that Puritanism is, to, is at the base of this, that British officers will at one point will berate a prisoner by saying it's your damned religion that has caused this problem. So yes, very often it is thought to be sort of the stalking horse for this, for this movement. Well, Stacey, it has been an enjoyable couple of episodes with you. I want to thank you so much for giving so much time to me and our audience to discuss your new book. It is just a, a pleasure to speak with you. Steve, thank you so much. Your questions were marvelous. Stacy Schiff is the author of The Revolutionary, a biography about founding father Samuel Adams, which is published by Little Brown. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.